The 1980s were a wild time. I was only between the ages of 3 to 12 during that decade, so I didn't know the half of it until I got older. If you were to take Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue, Iron Maiden, and Twisted Sister, throw in a dash of Geraldo Rivera, Morton Downey Jr., and Sally Jesse Raphael, sprinkle in the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, and then add a layer of Dungeons and Dragons, you'd have yourself a delicious meal that would make every parent in the world nervous and looking for answers, looking for someone else to blame aside from themselves. That was the 80s, and that was the Satanic Panic. The term Satanic Panic was heavily used as the 80s closed in on the 90s. It started, however, in 1980. That's when the book Michelle Remembers was released. Michelle Remembers was a book written by a Canadian psychologist named Lawrence Pazder and his former patient, Michelle Smith. It claimed to be the true story of a year-long battle with a group of child-abusing Satanists. The legitimacy of the claims and the methods Pazder used to extract the information were heavily contested, but it was too late. The book was a bestseller and was passed around from home to home on every block in every city. The book gave parents a proper villain, someone other than themselves, to blame. The book was even used as training in some cases for police officers and healthcare workers. A few years later, in the summer of 1983, there was a report of an employee at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, sexually abusing kids. Instead of quietly working the case, local police sent out a letter to almost 200 families asking them to help out the investigation by interrogating their own children. Kids mentioned a half-goat, half-man that sometimes hung out, animal sacrifices, a teacher who could fly. Parents dug under the preschool in hopes of finding an elaborate series of tunnels. By 1986, as the various cases went to court, seven employees were charged with over 100 counts of child molestation. Cases began popping up all over the country. The defendants never wavered from their innocence, and eventually, after years and years in some cases, charges were dropped. Eventually, one of the key students making the accusations admitted that he had lied. Eventually, Geraldo Rivera apologized for stoking the fire. But as is the case with any widely believed conspiracy theory, it was too late to put the genie back in the bottle. The 1982 movie Mazes and Monsters starred a young Tom Hanks, who began to lose his mind while playing a game similar to Dungeons and Dragons. In his hypnotic trance, he saw goblins and orcs attacking his city, a city he needed to defend. The movie was based on a true story from the University of Michigan, involving a diehard D&D player who attempted to take his own life in the tunnels below a building on campus. Practically every record released in the 1980s was played backwards at some point, as authorities, parents, and teens attempted to find hidden messages from the devil himself. Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, and a song from Judas Priest that commanded two Nevada teens to kill themselves were some of the biggies. Judas Priest eventually won the court case that surrounded the controversy. According to Wikipedia, in his book entitled Satanic Panic, author Jeffrey Victor writes that, In the United States, the groups most likely to believe rumors of SRA, or Satanic Ritual Abuse, are rural, poorly educated, religiously conservative, white, blue-collar families with an unquestioning belief in American values, who feel significant anxieties over job loss, economic decline, 
and family disintegration. He compares it to other moral crises, like the Salem Witch Trials, a form of scapegoating for economic and social ills. In 1994, a training video entitled The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults was released to police departments around the country. I found a VHS copy of it. Let me play some of it for you. Today it's my privilege to host this program on a little-known area in law enforcement, but important to every small community and every large city across our vast country. It's the area of satanic cults and how they impact our families, our children, and our communities. In satanic occultism, that which is good is bad, and that which is bad is good. And as you view this learning and educational tape, pay attention to notice the reverse of everything that is normal becoming abnormal. The problem involved with the cult explosion is becoming a many-faceted puzzle confronting law enforcement today. Not only is it difficult for us to understand the secret practices of satanic worship, but there are deeper reasons that go beyond mere lust for power and the unlimited drugs and deviant sexual behavior that go with it. There are three general areas and levels of involvement in satanic occult worship. The first would be dabblers. They're people who just use it for fun and games, may be involved in some video games and that kind of level possibly a little graffiti, but reasonably innocent. The second level would be those that are involved for spiritual reasons, and they recognize that there's power in the worship of Satan. These people generally worship together and try to find the mystery of it all. And then the third level would be criminal involvement, and that's the area that interests us. Now remember, all satanic people do not commit crimes. Some of their activities are perfectly legal. Maybe you think your community is immune to these satanic crimes. Well, it's not. The next victim might show up tomorrow on the beat. It could be in your community, or it could be in a major city, or a small rural area. Could be a member of your family. Could be someone you know. I challenge you to investigate each crime just a little bit deeper. Let's stop this heinous crime that's going on in the name of the devil. Let's stop it before it takes another victim. Let's stop the Richard Ramirez's and the Clifford St. Joseph's before they kill one more innocent person. That video was released a year after the young men known as the West Memphis Three were put on trial and found guilty of murdering three boys as part of a satanic ritual. After new DNA evidence surfaced, prosecutors allowed the three men to enter Alford pleas, allowing them to assert their innocence while still acknowledging that prosecutors had enough evidence to convict them. They'd each served 18 years for a crime many believe they had no part in. But that was the 90s, and we're here for part three of the 1980s series. So let's get to it. Episode 45 
Sally, Shane, and the Satanic Panic. Sally McNelly was born on March 26, 1970, in the small town of Ballinger, Texas. She never got to know her father, who was out of the picture before Sally turned two. Her mother, Patricia, was young, between 16 and 17 when she gave birth. The two were more like sisters in Sally's youth. In the early 1980s, Patricia and Sally packed up and moved 36 miles southwest to San Angelo, Texas, where Patricia enrolled in Angelo State University to study nursing. Eventually, Patricia met a man named Bill Wade, and the two wed. As Sally entered her teens, she became rebellious, ran away from home a number of times, and eventually dropped out of her senior year of high school just four months before graduating. In early 1988, Bill and Patricia welcomed a son into the world, Sally's brother, Derek Wade. Sally had just turned 18. Despite her setbacks, Sally had a plan. She'd get her GED and then enter the Navy. Shane Stewart was born on August 5, 1971 in San Angelo, Texas. He was the second boy born to Marshall Stewart. He had an older brother named Sean. His mother, Caroline, appears to not have been in the picture much, at least later in life. Shane was a lifelong San Angelo resident who worked part-time at a local pizza hut and had big plans to enter the Air Force after completing high school. In 1988, he was only 16, but looked the part of a college kid. He was tall at 6 foot, muscular, and handsome. That's why no one questioned Sally McNelly, 16 months his senior, when the two began dating. The pair met at San Angelo Central High School and dated off and on for a while. In the summer of 1988, they decided to take a break. Shane took a construction job in Kansas with his brother and uncle, while Sally went to stay with her grandmother in Hawley, 100 miles north. The week of the 4th of July, Shane flew back home in order to attend an upcoming family reunion. He was surprised to learn that Sally had returned to San Angelo already. His father, Marshall, noticed the concern on his son's face. The pair had recently been threatened a number of times, and Shane was concerned for Sally's safety. He wouldn't go into details with his father, but assured him that he could handle any problems that surfaced. Marshall offered his help, financially or otherwise, and advised his son to watch his back at all times. Shane, he knew, had a penchant for getting into fights from time to time. The 4th of July, 1988, was a good day for both families and the residents of San Angelo. Parties and barbecues were held, and people were looking forward to the annual fireworks show over Lake Nasworthy, especially Shane and Sally. That evening, Shane told his dad that he loved him and laughed in his prized 1980 copper-colored Camaro. Sally told Patricia and Bill that she would potentially end up spending the night at a friend's house, just as Shane pulled into the driveway. The couple had a nice night planned. They'd watch the fireworks at 9 p.m., get some late dinner together, and then just see where the evening took them. Eventually, they found themselves near a campground at the O.C. Fisher Lake Reservoir, where they hung out and stared up at the stars. They were presumably happy to be back in each other's company after the months-long break. Nearby, in the middle of the artificial lake, a fisherman named Randall Littlefield checks his watch. It's 1 a.m. when he notices a pickup truck approach the couple who are laying together on the hood of Shane's car. He can tell that there's an argument happening, but can't make out everything the two parties are saying. At one point, he does hear Sally yell out, We're not into that anymore. 
The truck leaves and the fisherman watches the couple get back on top of the car. It would be the last time anyone would see Sally and Shane alive. Neither Patricia Wade or Marshall Stewart worried about their children when they didn't come home that evening, assuming they'd spent the night with friends. As the morning of the 5th came and went, they both became increasingly worried. Later that day, an officer came upon Shane's copper-colored Camaro at the same spot where the fishermen had seen them. The windows were rolled down, the keys were on the dashboard. Shane's license and a small amount of money were also inside. Aside from some food wrappers strewn across the back seat, there were none of the telltale signs of a struggle or foul play. Shane and Sally's parents then reported them as missing. After learning of their relationship, officers of the Tom Green County Sheriff's Department initially guessed that the couple had ran off together. Maybe Shane had taken Sally back to Kansas to protect her from whatever trouble loomed. Maybe they had eloped. Marshall Stewart didn't agree with those assumptions. He knew that his son would never have left his car sitting at the park, wide open with the keys inside. He'd been careful to keep it locked up even when it was in his own driveway. As the summer went on and days and weeks passed without any sign of the couple or clues to what had happened, Marshall and his oldest son, Sean, began helping the sheriff's office in the search. They went door to door, talking to the couple's friends and enemies. No one knew anything. Or at least they weren't talking if they did. The rumors of occult activities escalated within the tips provided to the Crime Stoppers phone line and conversations that Marshall had with members of the community. It was the peak of the satanic panic, and the occult, Satan, and Dungeons and Dragons was being blamed for every issue, it seemed. One strong lead came from the rumor that Sally had joined a cult and then brought Shane in on it. The two had maybe seen something they shouldn't have and were being threatened for leaving the group. Sally's mother Patricia didn't believe a word of it, hoping that she knew her daughter better than that. The Tom Green County Sheriff's Office eventually revealed that Sally had reportedly turned in a gun recently that one of her acquaintances had given her to hide. It gave weight to the theory that Sally and Shane had been murdered in retaliation for going against the cult wishes and contacting authorities. The gun had been reported stolen and could never be tied back to anyone aside from the original owner. A few weeks into the search for the missing couple, Marshall Stewart came across something he wasn't expecting. While walking a path he'd searched just the night before, the stench of rot and decay hit his nose. He was sure that he'd found his son's body, and it was indeed a body, but not the one he was trying to find. The corpse belonged to a gentleman named Gerald Coley, a known drug addict, who'd probably overdosed and been dumped there by a friend not wanting to get in trouble. Summer and much of fall passed without many new leads or clues. Sheriff's deputies and Marshal Stewart devoted time each day to the search for Shane and Sally. Then, on November 12th, a Saturday morning, two hunters made a gruesome discovery in a remote area of the Twin Buttes Reservoir. It was roughly 15 miles south of where Shane and Sally had last been seen. Below some broken branches and a bit of tarp lay the skeletal remains of Sally McNelly, still wearing the same blue jeans and blouse she'd been wearing on the 4th of July. The coroner's office wouldn't release the name until the autopsy had been performed, and the local paper ran a story about the body the next day. They didn't want to speculate, but everyone knew. Two days later, while searching the area for clues, a police officer came across a second body covered with branches. 
The officer radioed for the Justice of the Peace to make his way to the area. Listening to the scanner at the time, as he'd become accustomed to doing 24-7 since his son's disappearance, was Marshal Stewart. Stewart arrived at the scene quickly, muscled past officers, and confirmed the body to be Shane's. He recognized the boots and outfit as the last thing he'd seen him in. Shane Stewart's skeletal remains were found 75 feet away from his former girlfriend. After both autopsies were performed, it was ruled that both Shane Stewart and Sally McNelly had been killed by a shotgun. It wasn't the outcome that anyone was hoping for, but the families were thankful to be able to provide a proper burial for the two young victims. Both were buried side by side at Belvedere Cemetery on Saturday, December 3, 1988. So while the question of what happened to Shane and Sally was answered, the police, family members, and the community alike were now faced with a stream of new questions. Who'd done this, and more importantly, why? Robbery was quickly ruled out for the most part. There'd been money and keys to the Camaro inside the car, and a little bit of cash and jewelry were found near the deceased. Shane was young but strong and would have put up a fight. He wouldn't have gone anywhere willingly. This led to the belief that there was more than one assailant. Law enforcement needed to consider the fact that it could have been someone they trusted as well. Did whomever was in the pickup truck force them inside and then drive them 15 miles to the Twin Buttes Reservoir before ending their lives? Police found no evidence of a struggle or shooting near the car at the campground. Campers in the area also reported hearing nothing out of the ordinary. In April of 1989, as the Tom Green County Sheriffs continued to work on leads and tips and interviews, the parents of Sally and Shane got together to offer a $5,000 reward. This was on top of the $1,000 already being offered by Crime Stoppers. Cult activity continued to be in the forefront of the investigation. It was reported that Shane had been wearing a jean jacket with Dungeons & Dragons characters printed on or sewn into the back. The leading theory continued to be that Sally had been a longtime cult member who knew or saw too much. She'd proven herself untrustworthy for turning in the gun and paid the price. Sally's mother Patricia continued to deny those assumptions. Beginning around 1983, two men in the area robbed and sexually assaulted numerous victims over the years. Some of the victims reported that shotguns were their weapon of choice. Police had never been able to catch the men. And while it was certainly plausible, Sally and Shane were neither robbed nor sexually assaulted. It was reported that Sally had been found with a fortune cookie in her pants pocket. The fortune inside read, You will always be surrounded by true friends. Any friends she had gave the police contradicting reports. Some knew that Sally was scared of something. Some claimed to have seen her partake in occult rituals. Some said she never would be a part of something like that. Most said they wouldn't say too much, even if they knew, because they didn't want to be the next target. Two more years ticked by, and as far as the public knew, zero progress had been made. Marshal Stewart continued his search for the killer or killers, turning over notes and evidence to the police. In May of 1991, it was announced that Unsolved Mysteries would be covering the case, and suddenly hopes for answers were renewed. The episode kicked off the show's fourth season and featured interviews with Marshal Stewart. Patricia Wade, and the lead investigator from the Tom Green County Sheriff's Department, Lieutenant Lou Hargraves. Family and friends painfully watched the episode air on September 18th of 1991. Unfortunately, nothing came from it, aside from an uptick 
in unreliable tips. Patricia and Bill Wade moved away, still returning to the cemetery on the anniversary of their deaths and sometimes their daughter's birthday. Years passed by, and then a decade, before the cold case was re-examined. In 2004, a team of investigators was formed that included officers of the Unsolved Crimes Investigative Branch of the Texas Rangers. They took a look at the case and worked on it for a bit, but nothing came of it. By 2010, Marshall Stewart was still spending at least a little time every day trying to come up with new leads or information. He refused to quit, despite the fact that he was even a suspect for a short period of time. Three years later, in 2013, hopes were once again renewed when Sergeant Terry Lowe and Sergeant Ray Mellis were assigned to reopen and re-examine the case. By that point, 25 years later, the pair of detectives had over 10,000 investigative documents to comb through. They administered polygraph tests, interviewed residents again, and even had a hypnotist come in at one point. In early 2014, Sergeant Lowe created a Facebook page dedicated to the memory of Shane and Sally. The page received thousands of views and hundreds of followers, including some family members of the deceased. He wanted to do anything he could to keep the case in front of the public. There were announcements of a possible suspect living in a foreign country. Shane's body was exhumed for DNA purposes. In fact, each of their bodies were exhumed a number of times. While it was upsetting to the parents, they were always willing to let the police do what they needed to do. The Texas Department of Public Safety highlighted the case in 2016, and Sergeants Lowe and Mellis continued their work. Then, in 2017, things got interesting. The FBI was brought in on the case and sent a team from their Behavioral Analysis Unit to help. In June of that year, there was a new person of interest announced. John Cyrus Gilbreth was a 47-year-old San Angelo resident who'd been in and out of trouble over the years. His rap sheet included larceny charges in 1987 and 1989, and a third-degree felony charge for dealing marijuana in 1994. Tom Green sheriffs had his name on their list and kept tabs on the man throughout the various investigations. He would have been 18 at the time, and a possible classmate of the victims. On June 12th, Gilbreth was arrested after police found drugs in his automobile during a traffic stop. This allowed officers to search his home. During that search, officers were surprised to find a handful of audio tapes marked S and S. Shane and Sally. They found writings about the couple, as well as what was first reported as biological substances. Those substances turned out to be a lock of hair and a fingernail. He was found guilty of unlawful possession of a firearm and body armor and various drug-related charges. But for whatever reason, and I certainly don't know all of the evidence, that's it. That's the end. Gilbreth is currently a free man still living in San Angelo. Marshall Stewart, now in his mid-70s, is still looking for answers, and I assume that the Tom Green County Sheriff's Office is still working on the case in some fashion. The Facebook page hasn't been updated since 2019, aside from a stranger or former friend occasionally asking for updates on an old post. Shane Stewart would have just turned 51 on the 5th of August. Sally McNelly would be 52 years old. Instead, their lives were taken from them, for an unknown reason, by unknown assailants, over 34 years ago. So what do you think, my curator detectives? An upset satanic cult? A former classmate with a grudge? A random act of violence with no motive? Let me know. Curator135 
at gmail.com. The story of Sally and Shane concludes my three-part series featuring bizarre stories from the 1980s. Ken McElroy, the Tylenol murders, and a story that fell under the craze of the satanic panic. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sure we'll touch on some more 80s fun in the future. That decade is full of craziness. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. And hey, I've got some new merch. Go check it out. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three. Now, they make down new, or beef, you know, you saw. Her memory, right?